A River to Cross, Chapter 9. A River of Fire, quote, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare, end quote. Second Peter, Chapter 3, Verse 10. The control use of fire was one of the earliest human discoveries, and its purposes were many, including a source of light and heat, a way to cook, clear forest, treat stone, and other substances for the making of simple tools and implements, and burn clay for ceramic objects. However, like with most other things in life, that which can be used for good can also be used destructively. So has it always been with the use of fire. The first fire I remember was at our home. It started off good, but suddenly turned in the other direction. I think it was in November 1961. I had on a brand new red shirt with my initials on it. My mother had just finished making it for me. Exciting about wearing my new shirt to school, I was warming up by the gas heater in the bathroom. The fresh starch in my shirt caught the attention of the gas flames, and all of a sudden, it was a lot hotter than I wanted. One of my sisters saw the flames and took quick action to put out the fire, saving my life. The fire destroyed my new shirt, but due to the quick actions of my sister, my back suffered only light first-degree burns. I don't recall us even going to the hospital. Dr. Jack was just next door, so I'm sure we just went across the street and saw him at home, or he may have heard and come over to our house. What I mainly remember is that I never got to wear my red shirt to school. Thinking back on that morning, it may have been just a lead-up to the Great Fire of 1962, which impacted my life and, to some extent, changed it forever. Fire leaves visible and invisible marks, and the Fire of 1962 left both types on my life forever. Sadly, it was not the last fire I would experience, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I believe it was around March 1962, and we were living in Meadville, having moved there in the summer of 1956. On this spring day, a young man from Bew, Douglas Shaw, had just finished cutting our grass and left for the day. I had been eyeballing the big-wheel Yazoo mower and the red gasoline can all morning. I had imagined myself as a yard man pushing the mower and refilling its tank from the big metal gas can. It wasn't too many years later that my parents would have been happy for me to assume that role. Of course, when it became their idea, it ceased to be attractive to me. My closest neighbor and lifelong friend, Jack Hollingsworth, Jackie back then, and I were into chemistry. Our idea of becoming great chemists involved trying to mix together many different substances, anything we could obtain that seemed appropriate. We would gather things from under sinks, out of closets, just anywhere bottles and jugs of chemicals could might be found. Our chemical protocol was fairly simple. Mix the stuff all up and see what happens next. If it smoked, we felt like we must be getting close to a cure to a dreaded disease or a miracle that might change the world. 
On this day, we got into the petrochemical business. I had a quart fruit jar, and in it we had a mixture of gasoline, lighter fluid, the kind in the yellow cans intended for use in Zippo lighters, some charcoal lighter, and because it was the same basic color of yellow, we mixed in a touch of little boy urine. Jackie and I were in the middle of the dead-end street between our two houses. The street had ended at the home of my first and best friend ever, Philip King. We placed the jar in the middle of the street, leaving a safe burning area on all sides of the jar. We had our magnifying glass, and we were passing light through the jar in an effort to ignite the gasoline. When nothing exciting happened, we got some big wooden kitchen matches, and as they say, Things heated up quickly from there. I actually had considered making sure there was a safe area around the gasoline, but I had not considered the gasoline that had spilled down my pants legs when I was pouring it into the jar from the five-gallon gas can. I poured some of the gasoline onto paper, piled it in the street, lit a match, and threw it on the pile. There was an explosion of sorts, a very distinctive and loud whoosh, and then a lot of flames that I tried to run from, but it seemed I could not get away from them. In fact, the harder I ran, the hotter they got. Sarah, a lady who worked for Dr. Jack and Mrs. Colleen Hollingsworth, chased me down. She was bigger and slower, but she had a long wooden handle broom she knocked me down with. I tried my best to beat the flames off of me, sort of like one does when a whole hive of red wasp or guinea wasp get after you. No matter how hard I hit, no matter how many times I hit at the red and yellow flames, they didn't leave and seemed only to get worse. This could have lasted only for seconds, but it seemed to be never-ending. I couldn't run fast enough, I couldn't travel far enough, and I couldn't beat hard enough to get away from or to get any relief from the fire. When Sarah got me down, I was in the side yard of our house, about 50 feet from where the fire had loudly and violently started in the middle of the street. The moment was critical, life-altering. The fire had to be put out immediately. The alternative was gruesome. My mother charged in at that critical moment. She, too, tried beating it out. That didn't work. Ignoring her own safety and her own life, she covered my body with her own by plumping down on top of me. Her long, blue, pleated skirt had the effect of a fire blanket. The flames were retarded and seemed to be gone. Thanks to Mama, everything was all right, and I felt like I was going to be okay. The fire was out. My mother immediately came to her feet to check on me, and she was stunned to see the flames instantly resume their full height and intensity. Without a thought, she threw herself back on the flames, whatever was necessary to save her child. Once again, the flames immediately were choked out with the smothering oxygen-depriving effect of the skirt. Yet again, she sought to rise, to check on me, and the moment she did, the flames were back to their ghastly work. Then she grabbed my little blue jeans and began to pull them off. I resisted mightily because by then, Susan and Leanne Hollingsworth, my neighbors, who were 
quote, older women, end quote, and whom I idolized had appeared. I was watching them through the flames, and I told Mama, no, you're not going to pull my britches off in front of them. Mama never blinked. Off came the pants, even though I was pulling back and resisting with all my might. Thankfully, Mama won the tug-of-war and the fire was out. When the fire went out, the real hell began. I suffered third-degree burns to most of my right leg. Also, both of my hands were badly burned. I also had lesser burns scattered around and over my nine-year-old body. The treatment for a serious burn is somewhat nightmarish for anyone, but for a child it was especially tough. For the first week, we went daily to Dr. Jack's office where the gauze applied the day before was removed. The only way to remove it was to tear it loose because the raw flesh from the wound would seep through and bond into the mesh of the gauze. Just imagine the feeling of ripping a Band-Aid off a really, really tender bad sore and then magnified about 11 dozen times and you're starting to get the feeling... Then imagine doing that daily over a whole leg, day after day after day. My leg became seriously infected. It put the whole leg in danger of becoming gangrenous and requiring amputation. By God's grace, my leg was saved and I was healed. I bear those burn scars today and my right leg is clearly smaller than the other, but truthfully I am greatly blessed to be alive. More than 50 years later, when I think about it, I can still feel the burning heat and smell the very distinctive odor of burning gasoline on human flesh. I remember and can still see my little blue jeans after the fire. They were not consumed, but were lined with what used to be the top layer of flesh from my right leg. The smell of burning gasoline and flesh is one that can neither be ignored nor easily forgotten, and so it is a memory I keep in a closet that usually stays securely closed. There are times when the doors to those memories open. Thankfully, it doesn't happen very often. Needless to say, I discovered a lot about fire through that experience. It involved an extended hospital stay and a recovery involving a number of surgeries. I lost the rest of the school year, but my teacher, Mrs. Ruth Ballard, and my mother worked in tandem to keep me from losing my third grade year. Thanks to them, I was able to pass successfully to the fourth grade. To this day, I still remember with great fondness and deep emotion my classmates walking up the hill from the school to have a party at my house. The line of friends and classmates coming up the hill, the very same one I took the shortcut on two years earlier to our house, was a key to the healing. It is a picture that stands stronger and more readily accessible than the more ghoulish one involving the leaping flames. I was still not able to walk at that time, but I remember being outside in a chair and seeing them all trooping up the hill. It was a blessing then, and it is to this day. Tragically, I have had to help bury quite a number of my classmates since then. Theirs was a kind and gracious effort that half a century later still brings tears to my eyes and healing to my body and soul. Life is precious and must be cherished. God blessed me to live through that and to be here to tell about it. Today I can even make light of some of the events. When I think of some of the people who helped care for me, Mrs. Martha Kent, a brand new but very tender-hearted nurse, 
Mrs. Jeannie Brazil, a tough old bird whose heart was touched by a little feller in, with a serious burn, and friends like Ricky Hill and others who pushed me in a wheelchair races around the hospital, it's a great and sweet memory that outweighs the immense pain also associated with that lengthy hospital stay. I also remember and reflect that much like the Bobcat Cage incident at the Butte football game, I managed to become the center of ongoing shenanigans while I was there, haunting the hallways at night in my wheelchair. I laugh out loud at myself. Today I know without a doubt that discovering fire in that way was and still is a very traumatic experience. Unfortunately, this was far from my last bout with fire. As a child, I had been warned about fire and about gasoline. I didn't heed those warnings and I suffered the consequences of my actions. Scripture warns, whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Galatians chapter 6 verse 7. That is still true today, more than 50 years downstream. I guess in the language of my cousin, I must have been drinking during that time. Life deals us all some challenges, but it's up to us to decide how we will respond to life's breaks. If we truly trust God, we will see that all things work together for our good as we trust him and that all things are an opportunity to serve and grow. Every day comes with some trouble. The key is to look up and learn to lean fully on God. He is here. We just have to be still and know that he is God and that he always does what he says he will do. Chapter 10, Coming of Age on the Homochitta. Parenthesis, Bad Company Corrupts Good Character. In parenthesis, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Camping on the Homochitta was just a way of life for us boys growing up around the Homochitta River back in the 1960s. One of our favorite campsites was just below the Highway 98 bridge over the Homochitta River. Our camping trips to that location flew under the flag of fishing, but these were also a country boy's version of nightlife in Times Square or Bourbon Street. Viewing nightlife at Franklin County style was an eye-opening experience for the group of young boys I grew up with. For as long as anyone can remember, people have congregated below the 98 bridge for social purposes. During the daylight hours, you'd see families picnicking with tubs of ice-cold drinks and baskets of sandwiches and fried chicken and potato salad, homemade ice cream and cold watermelons. There were people swimming and sunning. There were church outings, young pastors with the kids from the church playing games and swinging from the rope swing in the swim hole just above the bridge at the site of the old bridge. There was an area just below the bridge where politicians gathered during election season. I remember one time in particular, among others, the area was the site for a heated political debate in the 1959 race for governor in Mississippi. When night falls on the banks of the Homochitta under the 98 bridge, the participants and the focus of fun on the river changed dramatically. 
The area below the 98 bridge is made up of a myriad of roads and little trails through the pine timber and the prolific green thorn bushes adjoining a very large sandbar. The result is that this relatively small area has a number of semi-secluded alcoves where, on any given night, one might find a family tent camping, a small group of men gambling, some rowdy boys with a fire blazing and beer flowing, couples gathered for parking, and meetings of people whose goal was not to be noticed. That area was our Times Square, our Bourbon Street. Although we knew nothing of such places personally, we always camped just a little below the area of activity, positioned perfectly to monitor and oversee all of these different nightlife activities under a wide open night sky. We camped and fished and monitored our lines in the river and the lines of night moves being played out in front of us on the bank of the Homochitta River. We saw, heard, smelled, and at times tasted all of these activities from our secret position as we came of age from age 11 to 14. This was all a part of my Homochitta education as the currents of the river continued to run through my life. The Homochitta is more than just nightlife under the bridge and a fishing hole. It is also a grand highway, and we spent many, many days and nights traveling along the Homochitta Freeway. We called it floating the river, which at different times meant an old inner tube, a plastic pool float, an old flat-bottom fishing boat, or a canoe. My first floats on the Homochitta were in some little blue plastic boats that belonged to family friends living on the river. My recollection is they were essentially like those little plastic swimming pools, but shaped like little boats. We had a great time. I remember imagining we were in the raft of Huck and Jim. Regardless of the type watercraft we used, we felt, or at least I did, that we were mighty explorers on historic adventures into the wilderness territory along the Homochitta. We made more float trips than I care to count. Sometimes it was a day trip from one bridge to another, and sometimes the trip was an overnight trip or one extending several nights when we traveled down to the Highway 33 bridge. On a few occasions, we went all the way to the Highway 61 bridge below Natchez. We would take along a few groceries, but mostly the food was there for the finding and catching. Whether it was a catfish taken straight from the river to the campfire, a few ears of corn from a nearby patch roasted in the shuck on our campfires, or a watermelon obtained by subtle means, there was plenty to eat along the Homochitta Freeway. I was learning the river, and its flow through me was increasing in volume year by year. When I look back now, I see clearly that I made no effort to plan. I took things as they came and, with rare exceptions, always chose what seemed most exciting at the moment. Like the Homochitta, life was flowing along, but unlike the Homochitta, I gave no thought to what channel I was following. One of the biggest lessons I have learned from this look back is I did not have a life plan. I knew from an early age I wanted to be an attorney like my father, but I didn't know why or even if that was God's plan for my life. 
To navigate the river, you have to make choices about the current you will follow. To navigate life, you have to make choices about the path you will follow and who you will be influenced by. All of this went completely over my head. I thought only of the next adventure. Living life God's way requires prayerful planning and knowing when to pull back and when to plunge ahead. And as they say, failing to plan is planning to fail. The homochitta, like life, can be docile and it can be very dangerous. The key to river travel is learning to read the river. And the key to understanding life is reading and following God's blueprint, the Holy Bible, and thus knowing when to move forward and when to pull aside and watch from the bank for a while. Life, like a river, rises and falls with times of flooding and times of drought. Knowing and acting on that knowledge wisely is the difference between successfully navigating life and being caught in the undercurrents.